crank through about six pages of notes today. It shouldn't be a problem because it's a little less um, controversial probably or, or deep in the sense of, of un... Like, like you've probably interacted with this type of thought before, but uh, if you haven't, hopefully it'll be helpful, and if you have, hopefully it'll give you a, a little bit more reinforcement and structure. So we're going to look at biblical hermeneutics, understanding the Old Testament, and we're really not going to dive into the Old Testament as much as just like lay groundwork for how you get to the Old Testament and do it well. Um, there's a book on hermeneutics, and I think it has a good picture of what the job of interpretation is, grasping God's word um, by Hayes and Duvall. I think it's a helpful, first couple chapters there are the most helpful parts of the book. Um, and, and they don't, I don't think, have any particular theological axe to grind. I think they're just talking about Bible interpretation. Um, all right, so we talked through what, what it is in terms of Scripture at the end of the day. Maybe I can just start with a more pastoral thought. Everything we, we believe and are committed to, everything that we know is true about God, begins and ends with Scripture. So even, you know, like, the heavens declare the glory of God, we don't know who that God is without Scripture. We just we can merely, according to Romans, understand that He is God and powerful; that He exists and is powerful. Um, but but the Bible fills in the data of what that power accomplishes and the character of goodness and faithfulness and holiness that drives that power to do what it does. The personality of God that expresses Him Himself in all the ways of creation, His revealed Word through His Son Jesus Christ. We don't have the scripture. Uh, we are blind and deaf men wandering in the dark. And so the, the scripture then is, according to scripture, it's, it's a light. It reveals and exposes us to truth so that we can respond appropriately. So here's the challenge of hermeneutics then. If, if we have a distortion in how we understand or how we, we shine the light of scripture on life, then, then it's going to affect what we think is true. It's going to change all sorts of things about how we evaluate the world and reality around us. So it's really important that, that we come to Scripture with, um, with as accurate a lens as possible. And it may be like, have you ever seen a really, really, really old window? And it's, you can tell the glass moves. Anyone, anyone ever seen that? You know glass is a super cool fluid. It's not a solid. And so like, if you see like a 100-year-old window pane... It's thinner on top than it is on bottom, and you can almost see like water, like, like it flows, but it distorts what's behind it. And if your interpretive rules are wrong, you're like that glass where, where when you look at Scripture and you look at life through the lens of Scripture and you interpret things in Scripture, you're, there's distortion. And if you don't know it, you might be as confident and committed to God as possible and still be wrong. So I want to make sure we get interpretation right. So let's start with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into the notes. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. I pray that you would give us insight this morning into how we can come to it as, um, as ones under it who need to hear from our king, not as ones who, through reinterpretation or imposition, can make your word say what we want it to mean. Uh, so Lord, help us to be submissive to you by being submissive to your word. Um, thank you for the time that you've given us this morning. I ask that you would encourage your people. And this morning would be rich in fellowship, in understanding, in worship, that our prayer together as a church family would be uh, a meaningful communication to you, that you'd be pleased with our speaking to you, and that you'd be honored to answer our requests. 
Lord, thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for the answered prayer requests we've seen within our church family over the last few weeks. We thank you that despite the fact that many people are getting sick over the recent weeks, uh, no one seems to be seriously sick and everyone recovers quickly. So Lord, thank you for protecting us. We ask for a little baby Salens, that he would come quickly and safely. We ask that you would give grace to, to Alex as she goes through the process of delivering this little baby. Uh, Lord, again, we ask for this morning for much mercy and grace upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, jumping into page 28 there. When we come to Bible interpretation, here's our, our kind of our basic goal, and that's to get to the original meaning. Um, good Bible interpretation works to discover the meaning of the Bible through exegesis. Big, huge word there, but that first word, ex, just like an exit, talks about getting something out. So if we have an exit, we're trying to get someone out of a building. Exegesis, is the goal is to get out of the text its meaning. Um, the opposite in this definition here is uh, reading into it our, our thoughts and our ideas. And so we want to make sure that we, we don't read into the Bible what we want to see there. I think we all can do this really, really quickly. I mean, almost every athlete does this with, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, it, it's just like we read not only ourselves into the text, but we read all things to be like, throw a football more accurately. The whole point there is contentedness in the middle of poverty and wealth. Um, so the diligent Christian is to use his spirit-empowered mind with the grace of illumination um, to work to get to the meaning, the meaning out of the text. We are not to impose on the text our goals nor inject our meaning or system into the text when it is not present. The text is not to be tampered with, but its meaning is that of the original meaning, and it is unchanging. And, and the point here is uh, hopefully made clear in the rest of the notes, but meaning doesn't change. The purpose of written language is to preserve accurately the author's thoughts through time and over distance, sometimes both, sometimes one or the other. Uh, so you think about why you write a shopping list down. Why do you do so? So you don't forget and you remember accurately, usually over both time and distance, right? So even something as small as a, a shopping list or maybe you have a to-do list you do. You write the to-do list down so that later you can accurately remember. You know, so maybe your spouse sneaks into your to-do list and writes, buy a super expensive gift for my hubby um, because they're trying to alter what you remember and do. Uh, the scripture is written so that there's accurate communication over time and distance. So that what we hold is God's word. You think about the incredible nature of this book. We are, we are hearing communication from God through someone like Moses. Like, just sit on that for a second. Moses wrote... And we're reading one of the oldest pieces of literature in all of human history to survive to this day when you read Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. You're reading Scripture. In fact, probably the most amazing one is Enoch. When you read Jude, there's like two verses in Jude that are kind of snipped out of the book of Enoch. And Jude says he is the seventh person from Adam. So you want the oldest piece of, piece of literature that I, I know of, I think it's all in, in all of human history, it's the oldest piece of literature in existence is in Jude. And you're going to read it. And if we understand what God says about his word to be true, it's an accurate representation of the person who is in the seventh generation ever in human history. And it's accurate. 
Why? Because it was written down. So our goal then, as the recipients of that written communication, is to kind of like, like time warp back, right? Like whether it's traveling through distance or traveling through time backwards, as we read something from the past, our goal is to remember, or not to remember, but to, to understand what that original author meant when he wrote it. Just like if you have a man who's at war, um, away at war, and he's writing to his wife a letter, the goal is that she would hear what he means to tell her, right? Not what she wants to hear, but what he needs to communicate to her. So I, I think you see this even in Scripture, Matthew 5. Uh, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not a iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So when you think about um, what those are, an iota is the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, I, I don't know that we have a great comparison in English, but uh, if you think like on a digital clock face, you know, you have like an eight is all of those digits. Hebrew is big blocky letters like that. I mean, it's like kind of scripted in, in most modern stuff, but it's thinking big blocky letters like that. The yod is just like the top two digits of the eight going like so for you all, it'd be this way. Almost all the other letters in Hebrew take the whole eight space. So when he says not a, not a iota, he's talking about the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, when he says that next word, dot, the dot is just a bad translation. It's really not a translation, it's an interpretation. Um, probably the, the one place you'd see something like that, it's actually a tittle is, is the, the technical word for it. So it's a jot or a tittle. You'll hear that phrase maybe. So we, we have tittles in English. We don't call them that, I don't think. I don't know. I'm not like that much of an English nerd. But when you write an N, that little top little mark on an N, you know, so you write an N. I'm going to write it for you guys. And you can draw a straight line down, and then you curve away from it. So there's this little dingly bob hanging off the N there. That technical word for dingly bob in Hebrew is tittle. Now think about what Jesus is saying then. Not the smallest letter not the smallest distinguishing mark on a letter, will be gone. What is he speaking about? He's not talking about verbal language. We don't have jots and tittles in verbal language. What do we have? Words, not those. So he's talking about the written document, isn't he? He's saying this, this whole thing's going to be preserved. I think if that's the case, then, then we would understand that we are under a deep obligation not only to read the text and understand the text, but understand it in its original meaning. If the original lettering is to be preserved, how much more the meaning needs to be preserved. Look at Isaiah 40. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand how long? Forever. Now that has to mean meaning. Because none of you speak Hebrew. But all of you can understand the meaning of the Hebrew author. Uh, So I think when we talk about the word of God standing forever, He is not merely saying the written language will survive because that's how the meaning is preserved, but the meaning also will be preserved. All right, moving on. So the interpretation of human language. Because the Bible is written in human language, the interpreter can come to the Bible with certain assumptions that allow for him to begin this important process. These form the basic rules of interpretation. Maybe I can say it a little little more amplified here. 
since God is the inventor of human language, and he's speaking to us. Um, I do this in premarital counseling. I talk about communication as like playing catch. If I was to play catch with Zion, I would play it in, in, a lot differently than I would play catch maybe with Daniel. If I'm playing with catch with Daniel and I'm throwing a football, I might throw the ball really hard, not because I'm unkind, but because I'm trying to throw it well. I'm trying to throw it accurately. And so I throw it really hard. Now, if I turn and throw it the same way I throw to Daniel, to Zion, I'm going to drill him in the face. You know, because little kids have slow reactions, so like the ball would hit him and then his hands would come up. And if it's a football and I'm throwing it hard, now I've got a kid on the ground with a bloody nose. See, we all intuitively know when, when, we're, when we're catching and receiving communication or balls, we throw appropriately to the person we're throwing to. And we expect from them an appropriate response back. So too with human language. If God is speaking to us, he knows how to toss the ball gently so he doesn't drill us in the face and we don't catch what he's sending. So, so if we believe that God is, maybe I could use the word, super competent, he's not, able to accurate, he's not only able to accurately communicate, he's able to accurately make sure that what we would hear is what he wants us to hear. I think it's actually really important for us because what will happen sometimes, I think, is there's this um, idea that because God is God, he can speak in, in kind of a supernatural sense and violate the laws of human language. But because he's God, he can do crazy things. I think that's to misunderstand the whole point of communication. Um, I think Warfield basically suggests to us that God is able to condescend and speak to us. And we do the same thing with, like, to children, right? Simple slow sentences to babies. Okay, so the interpreter should expect God to use language grammatically. God uses human language to communicate to us about himself and his desires for us. Because God is the creator of human language, and because he used men to write under inspiration, we can expect God to use the normal rules of grammar, syntax, in the Bible. His use of subjects, verbs, nouns, and adjectives will be in the normal sense that all language utilizes these building blocks of communication. And so we need to understand, and I'll, I'll say it a little later, but like when it comes to Greek or Hebrew, there's rules for their language and so a scholar will understand those rules and move it to our rules for English. That's what a good interpretation or translator does. That's why they say, what was the translation for um, tittle? They called it a dot, which is kind of not what it is. But that's the closest maybe way for us to really easily capture it and not be lost. The interpreter should expect God to use language historically. God uses men who are involved in the process of history. So they use language in terms that were normal for their time. They would, not, or they would not, nor could have, spoken about cars, planes, or other modern concepts specifically. They also would have used the normal idioms of their day. So like, for instance, the King James says when they had well drunk, it's just a common idiom for intoxication. Or like in the Old Testament, there's this time where Saul goes into a cave and he covers his feet and David doesn't kill him. David's in the cave. Covering feet's an idiom for going to the bathroom. So... I, I would think because, like, when you sit down and derobe, your feet get covered by your robe. And so just like in our, I mean, you, you, think, you think about this. We do the same thing. Kind of, like, laugh at it. But, like, generally speaking, in polite company, we say things like, go to the bathroom. Really, are you just going to the room? What's going to happen there? Why are you talking about that? Well, because it's impolite to talk about the particulars. And so in the Hebrew culture, it's the same way. Uh, theirs was covering their feet. Well, that's a historical reality, and we need to recognize that, that 
we need to do the work of understanding their history and their culture so that we can accurately communicate to us. Um, the interpreter should expect God to say what he means, and that meaning will never change. God said what he meant through inspiration. That meaning does not change ever. I think that's kind of part of the eternality of the word of God, that it's unchanging. The text cannot mean what it never meant. The meaning at the time of the writing is the meaning. Um, I have a footnote, and it's probably worth kind of jumping over to uh, one of the appendices here. Uh, the distinction between church and Israel. So here's, here's one of my, my concerns, is that when, when David is told, for instance, that Israel will be planted in the land forever, what, what does that mean then? Right? Like, God is, God is communicating to David. He is throwing him a football. What does David hear when God communicates that Israel is going to be planted in the land forever? Well, I, I think we should ask that question and answer it well. So, so here's where I think we, we recognize that we can't just replace that with somehow a typological idea like this was actually meaning the church in prospect or a typological church or something like that or, or that now the church is spiritual Israel, therefore we receive the promises of Israel because in order to do that, we take the original meaning David had and we twist it to mean something different today. This is, to me, this is what liberals do with the Constitution when they make it a living document. Talking, making a living document just means I don't want to be bound to the original meaning I want the opportunity to change its meaning for what I want it to mean today. Well, what's the purpose of written language? To securely transport information through time and space. And so if, if the recipient can change the communication, then the purpose for written communication unravels. You, it's lost. Okay, so page 33, this appendix. Um, Israel and the church are distinct in their composition. How, how is one an Israelite? Through birth. Biologically, uh, it's also a nation, so there's a biological, political sense. And I think through generations, um, Gentiles will be incorporated into the nation. I think it took something like three generations for someone who was just a Gentile to be able to worship in the temple as though an Israelite, if they did immigrate. Um, but that's why you have like a phrase like sojourners. Because there are people who had politically begun to partner with Israel, but yet weren't part of Israel as the nation. The church, however, is different. It's spiritual. Number two, they're distinct in their origin. Israel started with Abraham. The church started not biologically with a patriarch, but at Pentecost with the apostles. Uh, and, and even in, in New Jerusalem, I think you see uh, some of that distinction um, and even Jesus, when he talks, is it Matthew 20, where he talks about when he come, the apostles will govern the 12 tribes. Uh, that's a biological heritage, right? The 12 tribes come from where? Israel's sons. Jacob's sons, right? Judah and Levi and Benjamin. These are men who had babies, who had babies, who had babies. We call those baby, babies of babies of babies, tribes, right? They're families. So when it says these apostles will govern 12 tribes, he's referring in point 1A to the biological, political 
grouping of people called tribes of Israel. That's what Jesus means in Matthew 20. Okay, they're distinct in their origin. Started with Abraham, point B, started with Pentecost. Spirit baptism is how you enter into the church. It's really clear in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, and 13. By the way, it's not a felt work. It's not like when you get saved, you know, you feel tingly and warm, and all of a sudden now you're part of the church. It seems to be a legal kind of idea, like the Spirit joins us to them and then gives us the blessings uh, of that new status, which is spiritual gifting. Point number three, they're distinct in purpose. And there probably should be a point B on the church there, but Israel is to function as a sociopolitical nation of mediators to other nations. So Israel was intended to kind of be like a magnetic missionary society. They didn't go out among the nations. They were to shine as a light. It's a horrible analogy here, but kind of like a bright light and the middle of the night draws bugs. Israel was to be that type of light drawing the nations and, and, and bringing them to the light and the goodness of God. So they were something like a trophy. Whereas the church is a spiritual group of ambassadors. Jesus tells us not to stay put and be bright and draw people to us, but to do what? To go into the nations. So, so even the purpose is that how we do missionary work is entirely different. Um, number four, they have distinct destinies. The Old Testament saints are resurrected after the tribulation according to Daniel 12. Uh, church saints are resurrected before the tribulation. Um, that's a little bit of an involved defense. I don't have time to do this morning, um, and this is not necessarily, it's not necessary that we defend that point for dispensationalism, but it's helpful to see. Point C, Israel will function as the lead nation over other nations in the millennial kingdom. Isaiah 60 and 61 make that clear that they're, they're, they're the nation that, dr that other nations are drawn to, and, and they're kind of the epicenter, the capital of the world, if you can say that. Whereas the church is the bride of Christ in the millennium and will co-reign with Christ over the other nations and Israel. And so they have, they have distinct destinies. And to me that's significant is that if we have distinct destinies in the future, then even right now we shouldn't be thinking of the church as somehow supplanting the promises that are for future Israel. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm bringing this up now because I think when we look back in the Old Testament and we see something like a promise to Israel, we need to think of Israel as a geopolitical, ethnic group of people that has a future that's distinct from the church. Because I think that's how the Bible presents it, historically. I think if David heard Israel, he's thinking the Jewish nation. I don't think he's thinking of some spiritually... Um, united conglomerate of people from all sorts of nations that we would call the church. I don't think he had that concept. But he did know about the Holy Spirit. He did know about God's saving work of regeneration because these are in the Old Testament. So it's not like salvation brings such a radical change of how God saves people or what he does in the work of salvation. In fact, I'd argue there is no difference in salvation, old and new, that David wouldn't have been able to conceptualize the idea of the church. He could have, and God could have said that, and he didn't. So I, maybe I could use my analogy of throwing balls back and forth of communication. God throws a baseball. David catches a baseball. You shouldn't call it a football, right? It's still a baseball, even though you like football better because it is better. All right, <laughs> back on course here. 
just want to just say all sorts of debatable things this morning. Page 29, um, the interpreter should expect God to use language univocally. Um, that is with one voice, uni voice. That, that, that's the normal use of language. Uh, the text has one meaning. There are not two different meanings. And I would argue there really aren't two different authors. There, there's, there's this um, united work of the Holy Spirit with the author so that the authorship or the, or the meaning is united, um, even though there are two agents of the writing. The idea of two authors violates the, just the theology of uh, inspiration. So some interpreters do appeal to kind of a fuller sense. Uh, some type of dual meaning, but these are violations of normal speaking and writing. At times, persons may speak with innuendo, but the context would normally make this clear. It also is normally unacceptable in polite company since almost all innuendo is inappropriate. The most common use of innuendo I've ever experienced in my life was when I lived in junior high. And the PE teacher and other teachers couldn't say anything that had even the most distant reference to something sexual, and the junior hires would snicker. So that's innuendo, right? When the PE teacher says something and all the kids laugh, and the PE teacher rolls his eyes because that's not acceptable in polite company, and that's why I'm trying to skirt saying any of those examples, uh, because it's not polite. Uh, we don't speak in, in double talk. Language doesn't work that way. Language is single talk, right? Um, and I should say normal human language. And again, if, if God is stooping to use language and he's the inventor of it and he's a competent communicator, then he is not violating these laws. So an appeal to innuendo that no one in the original audience would have picked up is nonsense. Now, I do think there's applications, so I just want to say this. I do think there's sometimes applications they may not have picked up, right? Um, maybe a good example would be, uh, if I'm going to use the idea of innuendo, um, I, there are times where I watch movies now that I thought were great movies when I was 12. Have you ever had this experience as an adult? And you hear something on the movie, and you're like, ooh. Because all of a sudden you have a much broader understanding of the world, and you realize, that although it was an innuendo, you didn't have the ears to understand what was happening, and so you missed something that was off-colored maybe. I think, I think at times maybe the Old Testament text would have that type of element in it where they didn't have ears or the spiritual understanding to receive what was written, but that doesn't change the meaning of it. I don't know if that makes sense. Haley? Well, I, yeah, probably. I mean, here's a really basic one that I love because it always, it, it always humbles my interpretive skill. When Jesus is proving the resurrection to the Pharisees, he says you're deceived because you don't know this thing. Okay, and he proves the resurrection. Does anyone remember why he proves or how he proves the resurrection? Well, he quotes, it's, it's, it's the event of the burning bush, and he says in the, at the burning bush when Yahweh says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that that has proven the resurrection. Anyone ever read that verse and you're reading this, you know, the story of Moses interacting with uh, God at the burning bush, and when God says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you're like, oh, that's solid proof of the resurrection. I'm going to write that down next time I talk to someone who believes in annihilation. <laughs> like, we just, we just don't have the capacity to see, and I don't think they would have seen it. And Jesus' point is the Pharisees didn't see it. 
Maybe a more, more prophetic one would be like Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, so I'll make your enemies your footstool. And then you have in verse 4, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. It's not until you get to like Hebrews where you start to see the author of Hebrews show us what the author meant. So I, my, my take on that is David knew what he was writing. But Israel didn't. <clears throat> so when I think of progressive revelation, I would think more like <clears throat> we walk into a room where the furniture is there and doesn't move, but the light gets brighter so we see more of it. So I think that might be a, a helpful way to think through it too. That like if we walk in here and it's pitch black outside and there's no lights on, we might not see all the chairs. And as we turn on the lights, someone who's really, really weird or dumb might be like, the chairs just appeared out of nowhere. They weren't there. Now they're there. Like, no, they were there. The lights just revealed what was already there. What I'm concerned is that, is that what we have now is, is especially with the, like, the liberal theologians or people who overly spiritualize or allegorize, they're saying things the text never meant to say or adding things to the text or changing the meaning of the text. I think, I think what I would say is the meaning doesn't change at all, ever. Applications may get clearer or, or expand because applications to me are derivative. They're not part of the meaning. They're derived secondarily to it. I don't know if that makes sense to you all. Um, uh, does that help, Haley? Okay. So I, if you're wanting to, this would be one of my tensions with covenant theology is they're changing the identity of Israel. Like, like Israel meant something different for David than it means for the New Testament covenantalist, especially the replacement brand of it. I would say that's true of the typological fulfillment brand as well. David would not have thought of himself um, and Israel as merely a type that disappears when the anti-type shows up. So, yeah. So are you, like I'm trying to understand your question before I try to answer that because I'm not sure I'm going to do a good job of this. Right. I, I think it... Right. So I would say in the church age, Israel has been set aside as the center of God's program for today. I would hesitate to say that it's a distinctly different thing I mean, Israel still is a nation. It, at least there's a recovered continuity in terms of national Israel. Hopefully it's an ethnic. I mean, that's kind of the point of um, all these Jewish people coming, coming back to Israel in 1948 or whenever. But, but in terms of God's program, God's focus right now is the church. And so I would say, like, what you really probably have maybe is, is because the spiritual work right now that God is doing in this world is through the church, we should consider Israel as somewhat set aside. Think Romans 11 again, where the branch is broken off and it's going to be regrafted in. Does, does that help at all, Paul? I feel like I'm, I'm not fully understanding your question, but... Right. 
Okay. So let's look down the, let's look down, right, so I'm going to say, I'm going to say some things that I may have to hold back, because I'm just kind of processing out loud with you. I would say that, generally speaking, we should consider Israel um, as a nation of God's program kind of on ice today, like, like, like they're not part of the program in this moment, but when you look in the book of Revelation, there's a recovery of national Israel in its spiritual unity with God. And until you have national and spiritual connection to God, it's not going to recover. Well, to be clear, I think what we would expect is that generally... I think less removal and, and more in the sense of addition. They're all removed right now from God. And only those who trust in Christ and are ethnic Jews will be part of future Israel. Like a future saved Israel. So in some ways, I don't have to answer the question uh, that you're asking. Because I think you're, you're asking, will they be removed? I, I would say better, they won't be added. Ethnic. Yeah, I would say ethnic Israel. Yeah, you could go over and immigrate into the nation of Israel. I, I don't think that grafts you into the Abrahamic promises, no. Right, and that's what I'm saying, Paul, is like, even ethnic Israel is not grafted in the promises unless they believe. And I would say the future for Israel doesn't kind of go off ice and back into the center of God's program till the tribulation where you have 12,000 from all the tribes, uh, from each tribe, so you have 144,000 converts. Zechariah says, they'll look on whom they have pierced, they'll mourn for him like a son. There seems to be a full major conversion. Romans 11 says, um, in this way, all Israel will be saved. So until that point, I would say, the better way of saying it, saying it is whether they're citizens of the nation of Israel or ethnic Israel, um, until we see the unification of ethnicity, and spirituality to the Lord, that, that that person is the new Israelite in, in the Revelation and forward, or, or is Israel, and, and shares continuity with the Old Testament Israelite. Correct. Right, again, I think we still got to be bound by David's thought. And, and even Paul, I think, helps us recognize not all Israel was Israel. In the sense that Israel being defined as the people of God biologically descended from Abraham who partook of the blessings by faith are the real blessed Israelites.
yeah, I would soften that a little bit and say, there is a branch of dispensationalism that latches on to that recovery of Israel. I think a lot of us are uncertain and somewhat agnostic, if I could use that loosely, about, about what geopolitical Israel today means for the future. Because I, my understanding is there's, there's more Jews outside of Israel than there are in Israel. And so you have a lot of Jewish people like in New York who aren't geopolitically Israel. But if they believe in Christ in the tribulation, I think they would be part of Israel, like biblically, even though they're not nationally a citizen of the current geopolitical people of Israel. Okay, now that we've lost everyone else, I'm going to pause that question, Haley, because I just want to get notes done. This is my last day of class, and I'm supposed to end in two minutes. So um, clearly I've been very successful at getting through these notes. Um, so I'm going to say God should use language without disagreeing with himself. That makes sense, right? If God is a God of truth, that all truth is consistent. I think uh, Acts 17.11 where the, the Bereans, and I think this is, this is valuable on, on a couple levels. So let me just pause for a moment here. The Bereans investigated the scripture to see whether the new revelation they were getting from Paul was consistent with old revelation. New revelation is always subservient to old revelation. That's how you tested prophets. If they disagree with what's already revealed, you stone them. You know, so the idea that you take the New Testament and impose it over the old is something the Apostle Paul would have disagreed with. It's something Luke, in writing Acts, disagrees with. So I think we have to be very cautious of an interpretive scheme that says, well, because now I see something in the New Testament, therefore the Old Testament means something different. No, they have to be consistent. So we need to be really cautious that whatever theological kind of commitments we have, that those commitments start with the Old Testament text needs to stand over and against the New Testament text and helps us kind of stay in the rails. I don't know if that makes sense. They shouldn't be in conflict at all. So if they're in conflict, the problem's you, right? And I would suggest to you that you have to start with the Old Testament. Otherwise, you're, you're not following the prescriptions of Scripture. All right, context and interpretation, um, I'm, I'm going to kind of fly through that. The original author, we need to understand what he's thinking as much as we can, understand the original audience, which means understand time and distance. For instance, Nebuchadnezzar could change laws, but Cyrus couldn't. You know, so when he makes that decree that uh, he would kill Darius, Darius makes the decree that he would kill anyone who prayed. And Daniel prays and gets thrown in the lions. He couldn't change the law. Or you get Ahasuerus who makes the law that the Jews could be killed on a certain day without any repercussions. And he can't change it, but then he he adds to the law. Jews could defend themselves because he couldn't change the law. But Nebuchadnezzar could change laws. So there's a difference historically that, that, I mean, some of that stuff is hard for us to read. This is where a good study Bible can help you. A lot of times they'll flag that so that when you're reading, you're like, wait, how can King Nebi change the law? It's like, oh, he's not under the law of the Medes and the Persians. Um, cultural distance. Um, I, I think that 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 is interesting. I know we've just gone through that, but chapter 8's not discussing meat offered to an idol, but where the meat was eaten. Paul uses two different words. One means idol meat, the other means temple meat to describe meat offered to idols as opposed to meat eaten in the temple. It's helpful to know that meat was usually done in that day. Eating meat was done in that day. Um, and reserved for special occasions like birthdays. 
Often these were held in pagan temples. Uh, they didn't have the local steak joint on every corner. They had temples where they ate steak. And that's pretty much it. It's very uncommon because it was so expensive. Uh, they didn't have refrigeration and transportation and huge herds of cattle. So for someone to eat goat or cow is just really costly. Temples could afford it. So it's, it's helpful to know that eating meat was done in temples. These were held um, um, in the temple rooms. There would be kind of off rooms from the main areas. And before the meal was eaten, one of the temple uh, servants, priests, priestesses, whatever, would come in and pray to the false god as they offered that meat to the family to eat. So here you are, a Christian. You go to celebrate the birthday of Pastor Mike, and you sit down to eat a good steak, and the server, a.k.a. priestess, lays all of this fantastic meat in front of you and prays to the god Aphrodite, goddess Aphrodite. And you're a Christian. Pastor Mike is there. You can see the problem in the church. If you don't know that culturally, you might just think the issue is eating meat. The issue is temples and relationship. So that's where Paul points out you cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Christians cannot eat temple meat because of the close association with Satan and fallen angels who are false gods. Um, Chapter 11 on wearing head coverings is also a fantastic cultural study. Understand geographical distance. Israelites were able to control the hill country in Joshua 14 because they couldn't conquer chariots. So all the flat land was owned by the other forces. Israel basically lived as refugees in the land of Israel all the way through the time of the judges. Uh, understand linguistic uh, distances. Sometimes word order is significant. The one that just comes to mind, I know I have Ephesians 2.21 there, but like uh, Hebrews 4 where it talks about the word of God is alive and active. In Greek, the first word in that sentence is alive. So if you just like really literally translate it, it'd be alive, the word of God is. It sounds like Yoda. Greek does that sometimes, not always, but sometimes for emphasis, which is the point there, I think. The point is the word of God is moving, dynamic, changing, and working within us. It's not merely static history that does nothing to its reader. It is a powerful tool in the instrument of the Holy Spirit's hands. So look at word usage, idiom expressions. Uh, for instance, remember, um, in the Bible, does not think of recall. It, it's to express concern and act for someone. So like if, if James tells us to remember him, he's not thinking that we just need to think about him. Biblically, he would be saying, and do something about it. <laughs> something good. So, like, for instance, when God remembers Israel, God's not going like, oh, yeah, Israel. The point is, God does something good for them um, in their hard time. You guys know this about no, or like 10th generation in Deuteronomy 23 probably means forever. Uh, last thing on the appendix on page 34, and by the way, there are footnotes. Some of them have content in them on page 35 and 36. Um, <clears throat> I just want to point out a, a, a couple, I think, valuable textual markers. Um, point number five on why we have future millennium. This, this is what Revelation 26 says. 20 verse 6 says. Um, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such a one the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Uh, simply said, the reason there's a millennium is because the Bible says so. 
Um, I think also point six, a non-perfect kingdom fits the almost paradise described in Old Testament texts, like Isaiah 65, 20. No more shall there be an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Um, if someone dies at a hundred and they're considered an infant, we have different lifespans going on in the future. But we also have death happening in the future. That d- that's not consistent with heaven, nor is it consistent with earth as we know it. Governance of the king requires equity for the poor and protection from the wicked. Again, not consistent with heaven. Not consistent with today. So, so I think those things argue for some type of paradise that's almost perfect. That would be the millennial kingdom. And then I think number seven is also fascinating to, to see. The Old Testament talks about a restoration after Israel's spiritual collapse multiple times. So the fact that today we have a spiritual collapse of Israel is something the Old Testament talks about frequently. So like Deuteronomy 30 says it. Um, I cite here probably a great passage is Ezekiel 37. Just in space of time, I didn't put the text there. God speaks of recovering Israel after they've been just a mess. Well, that's Israel today. So we're looking forward to future restoration according to the Old Testament, a restoration that hasn't happened. And again, if original meaning if it means what it always meant, when Israel's promised a restoration in, in Deuteronomy 30 or in this passage in Ezekiel 37, what does Israel hear? Do they hear that, they're, that instead of the ethnic group of them in the geopolitical spiritual unity of them being restored, that what God actually means by restoration is random Gentiles across the globe will trust in God? That doesn't make any sense like textually. So I think dispensationalism is marked, if you go back to like page one or two, Vlock has like six things. I think they're really helpful to understand. But one of them is just a consistent interpretation of the text in its own context rather than forcing into it something else it doesn't say. All right, that's the end of the notes. Um, I had about 25 more pages of notes. But for sake of time, what we'll probably do is do a more technical defense of or interaction with these types of thoughts uh, sometime later and sometime smaller. Because many of you are like, ah, I don't care about this. I'm good. Some of you are like, man, I want to ask like 18 questions because he didn't answer this and there's a problem here. Uh, yeah, you can just chill and we'll hopefully get you what you want a little later in a more smaller context. We're going to have fun digging a little deeper and, and processing the harder questions and technical questions in a way that's really enjoyable. Some of you are a hybrid and you are a challenge to teach. I'm glad you're here. You, you want to understand the technical stuff, but you know you need to learn more to be able to play with the technical stuff and not hurt yourself. And so just keep learning, keep growing, and, and you'll get it. The Lord will open your hearts and minds. I want to do a book giveaway and then be done. So if you promise to read these books, that's the one thing. If you promise to read them, you could come grab one. I have five um, books by Michael Block on the, the essential beliefs and myths of dispensationalism. This is where I got those six points from. I find it really helpful in understanding the basics in many ways. I don't think he's doing much defense here, right? So he's not arguing his case as much as just saying, hey, here's what it is, kind of simply. This, I think, is also relevant. And by the way, we're also trying to purge some books that we want to purge. We've done some other stuff on end times, and these are some leftover books from a, series, a few series ago. 
Christ's prophetic plans for Israel, or prophetic plans, excuse me, not for Israel. It would include that, though. So that's why I'm bringing it out today. So if you want one of these books, come up to me afterwards, and I have five of those. So I have five of each. The only thing you have to pay for these is a promise that you read them, all right? If you really want to, like, go the extra mile, then give it to someone else and make them read it. So, all right, you're dismissed.